more weeks in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, ahead of us. If you will turn today to chapter 14 in the Gospel of Mark. Just a couple more weeks, like I said, in that chapter, and then we begin chapter 15 and 16 and 17. No, it ends at some point, right? It ends in chapter 16. This is a very intense portion of Scripture, what's taking place. The type of text, the type of reading, it's, it's called a narrative, and it's telling us a story. It's telling us what transpired that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was, was arrested. And so this morning, if you will, stand with me as we read the Word of God, beginning in verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs for the chief priests and the scribes and the el- from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is still true, that every jot and tittle, every dot, cross, T, whatever, it all is meant to glorify you and draw us to you. So today I pray that that be done, that your will be done through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. This is the arrest of Jesus. Someone who committed no crime, committed no sin, and yet here he is getting arrested. You've all probably heard this story before. You've all read the text before, especially around Easter time. It seems like this text gets visited one way or another in one of the Gospels or another. And yet, It's still something that should be preached and taught and read and studied every season of the year. Because there's a truth that's applicable within it that we need, that we must comprehend. And that's simply at this, it's it's simply this, at our lowest moment, God's good plan still triumphs. Like like I prayed earlier, wherever you are in the chaos and and the problems and the consequences of life, God's good plan still triumphs. We might hear that, we might say, well, what about my plan? What about my will? What about what I want for my life? Well, what about it? Last week when we looked in the text, Jesus was very clear as he prayed, not my will, not my, if Jesus is praying, not my will, but your will be done, then we should be able to pray, not my will, but your will, Father. Let that be done. This is the danger of that teaching that, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm not saying that's not true. It is a wonderful plan, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? Sometimes it doesn't seem that way. And we are 
going to have to learn to rejoice in suffering where God takes us, to find the wonderful in the pain, to find the goodness in the the hard circumstances, the kind of hurt that taught the Apostle Paul in order that he might write for our benefit We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Absolutely he does. But do you still believe that when they're feeding Christians to the wild beasts in the Roman Colosseum? Or burning them alive on the hills of Scotland? or imprisoning them during lockdowns in Canada? Do we still trust in God's good plan in our lowest of moments when hope seems lost? We should, if we understand who God truly is, if we believe his word. This is a very, like I said, a very intense portion of scripture and like I said many of us have heard this before and we go through this and in the Easter season but it's it's not just for Easter it's for every day of our lives someone once said I don't need to hear the gospel anymore I've heard the gospel so many times pastor I, I wish you'd just quit just preach on something else talk about something else man I need the gospel to tie my shoes in the morning I need the gospel to get out of bed in the morning sometimes Because I need to be reminded of God's goodness. It's not just for Easter. Within this text, we see Scripture being fulfilled. We see the faithfulness of the disciples that is tested, something Jesus has promised them. We see the the truth that Christ has been trying to teach them for three years now at this stage in their ministry, in His ministry. And above all, what we're truly seeing take place is this, that in their lowest of moments, even in the lowest moments of Christ's earthly ministry, we see God's good plan still triumph. We read back in verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Imagine for just a second, that you're there this evening. It's the middle of spring. The ground is probably a little damp. There's a full Passover moon. You've been in the garden now for at least a few hours while Jesus has been off praying, struggling to even stay standing while he prayed. The three main guys who who are always with Jesus, you can see them off in the distance. They're rubbing their eyes. They're, They're trying to wake up. You hear Jesus scolding them for falling asleep. And somewhere in the distance, you just, you just feel the wind, the, the air become colder. John tells us it was a, a cold night in John 18, 18. The nip of the air begins to bite, and you hear Jesus say something that causes Peter, James, and John to jump to their feet and look in your direction, and it causes you to, to turn and you look, and what do you see? But Judas, one of your friends, and he's walking into the garden with an entourage. Who are these people? Who is this group? He's not alone. Who's with Judas? Behind him, you see this mob. And you recognize some of the men. You you recognize them because you've seen them this week. They've been in the temple. They're the temple guard. They're, They're carrying their clubs. And you recognize some of the other men too. The professional soldiers. Romans brandishing their swords. 
What do you do? Some of you might just look around in awe, just try to get a better view of the land. Some of you might slink back a little bit, try to see how things play out. Maybe you rush to the Messiah's side. But something big, you know in your core, something huge is about to happen. Judas has walked into this arena. This garden now is like an arena, and he walks in like the grand villain that he is, and you can almost hear the John Williams Imperial March as he's coming inside. Dun, 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 dun. You know something bad is happening. Jesus is not caught off guard. He told the three, he said, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And I said last week, you might interpret that or translate that in modern English. Get up, follow my lead. Judas is here to execute his plan. And it's a good plan. You know, we got to, I mean this literally, give the devil his due. It's a good plan. He's going to do something that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders and And many other people have tried to do before. Judas is going to complete it. Though it's not a plan necessarily concocted in his own mind, we know from John's gospel that Satan himself had entered Judas. And yet this is the perfect opportunity for the Sanhedrin, for the religious leaders, them using Judas. This is is so perfect for them. This is going to take place at night. This is under a cover of darkness. It's outside the city. There's not, there's not going to be a huge uproar if they arrest him tonight. Nobody's going to know about it. There's not going to be some mob that rushes to Jesus' defense. By the time the whole city gets word about Jesus' death at, at, on the cross, it'll be too late. He's already going to be hanging there. They don't have email and mass texts like we have today. Judas has arrived on the scene. His whole purpose to betray his teacher. Mark says one of the twelve, the gospel writers, all refer to Judas as one of the twelve. They're just showing this is This is who Judas is. This was a title given to him by Jesus. And in seeing that and reading that, we understand the the veracity of the betrayal, don't we? The grandness of the betrayal. He's one of the inner circle, right? He's one of the closest people to Jesus. And in calling him one of the twelve, it also shows us their their self-control. That they're not, that they... They're past this by the time they're writing. One writer said the simplicity of their description heightens the evil of his actions all the more, better than any list of names, any derogatory slur, any criticism that they might want to write. It shows the fulfillment of verses 18 and 20 in this chapter. John tells us he managed to get some Roman soldiers. That's, That's the guys carrying the swords that Mark points out. And the officers of the chief priests, the the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the temple officers, they're there. And Mark tells us that they came from them. These are the three distinct groups of the Sanhedrin. The, they're all united against their common enemy, this carpenter from Nazareth. But Judas's work isn't done here. Verse 44 says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. 
seize him and lead him away under guard. Now I want you to catch a few things this morning, very important things about Judas's the words he uses. In 2 Samuel, David betrays his God in having an affair with a woman Bathsheba, and the prophet Nathan comes to him, and in judgment, he tells him a parable. And when it's over, David says, well, the guy that you're talking about deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are that guy. And in a sick, twisted way, what what does Judas say? The one I kiss is the man. It's this counterfeit accusation where a man was guilty and tried to hide his sin and the prophet comes and says, you're that guy. And here Jesus is open and without sin and Judas says, he's the guy. It's this broken mirror image. And it continues with this this way, this Mark uses this word, the betrayer. The Greek there is actually the word paradidas. And it, ironically, it means he is the deliverer. He's the deliverer of Jesus. The one who surrenders and hands over. He's a counterfeit deliverer, this betrayer. He's given the mob this sign, a signal to know who to go after, who to focus on. He tells them, the one that I kiss, that's your guy. That's the man. Seize him. Lead him away under guard. In other words, do not let him get away. Because Jesus has before. There are various ways Judas could have kissed Jesus, by the way. Could have kissed him on the hand. as a way to show honor, respect. As you would a guest or a friend. He could have kissed him on the feet to show that he was a servant. And yet Judas chooses to embrace Jesus and kiss him on the mouth, a symbol of dearest love and affection. This is the kiss of a pupil to his beloved teacher. Judas takes this intimate greeting, this act of honor, this act of friendship, And he perverts it and makes it an act of selling out the Savior. Jesus himself points out how disgusting this act is. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, Judas, you have gone too far. You go too far. He could have simply pointed him out and said, Hey, this is the guy, everybody. This is who I was telling you about on the way here. He could have walked up and just put his arm around him. He could have walked up and and grabbed him by the hand, but the kiss he gives shows how deep the poison of wickedness runs in Judas' heart. How low he is willing to go for that little pouch of silver coins that now hangs around his belt. Verse 45 and 46, When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Church, I want you to understand this. Jesus met this crowd head on. He's not avoided what's coming. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. It wasn't something that caught God off guard. He boldly walked towards it. Hebrews tells us because of the joy set before him. He walked towards it because it was God's 
plan, God's good plan. And Jesus walks up to the crowd to Judas. And Judas has, for no, no doubt, he's probably walked into the garden and he's probably looking around trying to find Jesus. Jesus had this knack, if you remember. He would sometimes send the disciples one place where he'd go off by himself to pray somewhere else. In fact, he kind of did a miniature version of this within, the, within this garden of Gethsemane. So he, he's probably glancing around trying to find the guy he's got to point out. If remember, Judas left the group back in the upper room. And he probably didn't even know where Jesus was going to end up that night exactly. Maybe Jesus would have stopped somewhere else. Maybe he would have stopped to get the snack or something else, going up and down that mountain, wearing up his appetite. And yet, he doesn't have to look for long because here comes that, that carpenter from Nazareth again. Here comes his rabbi. Jesus could have slinked back to the shadows. He could have climbed over the wall to escape. He could have left, and Judas would have been none the wiser. And if Jesus wanted to fight, despite the disciples being outnumbered, despite them being outclassed in weaponry and things, Jesus could have put up quite a fight. He could have demolished them entirely. He said he could have called a legion of angels to his assistance. And yet Jesus still walks forward. The fight is over, you see. He's already won it. He won the fight in prayer. He submitted himself to the Father's will. He's going to drink that cup of wrath. He's going to take the whip. He's going to take the crown of thorns, the mocking, the spitting, the nails, the cross. Jesus does not run away. In fact, he heads towards the cross as he steps towards Judas. And Judas sees him. The betrayer sees him and, and goes up to him and wraps his arms around him and he says, Rabbi, as a, as a student would, a beloved teacher. I want you to notice this this morning. It's one of the things I really hope to point out to you. Judas is the only disciple who never calls Jesus Lord. At the very most, he'll refer to him as rabbi, which means my master, my, my great one, but Judas will never call Jesus Christ his Lord. Church, there is a difference. I've had plenty of teachers in my life. I've met some pretty great men. I've had some good bosses. That's the 21st equivalent, 21st century equivalent to a master, I guess. And I've only ever had one Lord. The Greek word is kurios. It means the one who rules your life. He's not just a master overseeing your works. He's not just a distant king you pay homage to. He's not just a teacher who gives you an education. Either Jesus Christ is Lord of your life or he is not. The early church understood this. The disciples would go on. This would be their message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because they would be forced to say at some point that either Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. And remember what Jesus had told the, the Sadducees, you give to Caesar what's Caesar, you give to God what is his. And they gave them their lives. In fact, they paid for that statement with their lives. To deny Caesar is Lord would mean certain death. 
To pronounce Jesus as Lord of your life is to say he is everything to me. He is above all things to me. He is my kurios. He is my Lord. When Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's not saying that if you just say, yep, Jesus is Lord, that that means you're saved. He's saying, you have to say that and the belief behind it is so intense, so pure, so, so matter of fact within you that you are ready to die for that truth. Because Caesar's not Lord. The things of this world are not Lord, but he is. Judas could not even call him Lord the entire time he knew Jesus. The gospel writers make this very clear. Judas was not saved. He may have taught in Jesus' name. He might have performed signs and wonders in Jesus' name. Judas may have cast out demons in Jesus' name, but Jesus was never his Lord. And there are many Christians today who will shout, Jesus is mine. Jesus is king. They may even say Jesus is Lord, but they're not willing to live for that truth, nor would they ever be willing to suffer for that truth. Jesus says, in fact, many will call him Lord with their mouth, but not mean it in their heart or their mind. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not enough to know about Jesus. Does Jesus know you? Is there an intimate relationship with him? And the thing is, Jesus was not just talking about Judas when he says these things. But Judas never calls him Lord. He calls him Rabbi. And he kissed him. The word kissed in this verse, it, it intensifies the, the Greek Phileso becomes kataphileson. It means this is not just a peck on the cheek. This is not just a little, and he's done. This is an intimate kiss to give the crowd plenty of time to understand who he is kissing, who is their target. And they put their hands on our Savior. And they put him under arrest. They would not be gentle. But all, not all the disciples are running just yet. Verse 47, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Of course, we know from John's gospel that this is Peter who does this. Makes sense, kind of follows, right? And the guy whose ear he cuts off is a, a guy by the name of Malchus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't ever tell us who, who it was who gets the sword out and does this deed that night. Likely because Peter was still alive when they were writing their Gospels, and they didn't want some Jewish faction to rise up, you know, the cult of Malchus or whatever, and, and try and get some kind of vengeance for him on behalf of the high priest. Malchus, by the way, doesn't really lose his ear either. Luke tells us, Luke twenty two fifty one, 51, Jesus touched his ear and healed him. There's so much just in that to unpack that's so fascinating. Aside from the miracle itself, it should, it should give us pause. In fact, my first question, when I read this every time, I always go, who thought it was a good idea to give Peter a sword? Who does this? He's got a reputation for being a hothead. I have a friend who has a very bad temper. I mean, you, you think, if you've ever ridden with me to Fargo, you think I'm bad, you got to hear this guy. 
bad temper. And he owns a gun. And I just think, man, that's a recipe for disaster, right? But that's what happens with Peter. Peter's not a trained soldier. He's not someone, he's definitely not someone who exhibits self-restraint. Why would they give him a weapon? Luke tells us they only had two swords. He says, look, 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 Lord, here are two swords. He said, well, that's enough. So the two swords, I think it's safe to say both the Simons got them. Simon the Zealot was a trained soldier. He was, he was a, a rebel at one point. That's why he's called the Zealot. So it makes sense to make sure he has a sword. He knows how to use it, right? Peter, on the other hand, I think there are a lot of pirates on the Sea of Galilee and he's swashbuckling his, his way around. No, no, absolutely not. I think he dealt with a lot of bandits who wanted to steal fish. What kind of bandit? I'd like three of those largemouth bass, please. Or things are going to get ugly. No, I don't think so. So who thought it was a good idea to give Peter this sword? Jesus did. Jesus did. He entrusts this man with a weapon he could not properly use. I mean, for crying out loud, he doesn't even cut the guy's head off. He misses and gets his ear. How bad is his aim? But Jesus knows this is going to happen. And if he was truly a bad man, if Jesus was this rebel, if he was this horrible person that he's been painted to be, if he's truly worth arresting, he's not going to stoop down in the dirt, pick up this ear, and put it back on Malchus's head. That's what we assume Jesus did, by the way. He could have just grown a whole new ear out the side of his head. We're not, we're, we're not told how he does it. We're just told he heals him. Now, Malchus is another interesting character because, you know, he works for the high priest. He, he works for Annas or Caiaphas, one of those two. They were the two high priests. He, he could have stopped and he said, no, you rebel, don't you dare touch me. I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to take this ear, give me my ear back. And I'm going to walk into the gates of Jerusalem and I'll wave this around. You see how peaceful this guy really is? He had my ear cut off. Malchus doesn't do that. Malchus doesn't dare. He wants his ear. Who wants to walk around hearing only half the things, right? He could have shouted, you're a man of violence. You're a man of death. He could have said, he could have looked at Jesus and said, you know, okay, you can heal my ear, but I want you to make it a little crooked. Heal it at an angle. Because wherever I go, I want to I be able to say, hey, see, see this ear, how it's like, Three inches lower than my other one? Didn't used to be. But I was there. I was there that night they arrested Jesus. I had a cool experience in the garden with Jesus. Not a lot of people could say that, but my ear tells the story. Could have done that. No, Jesus heals him completely. And Malchus lets him. What's that tell us about Malchus? Better question. What's that tell us about his boss? Or bosses. They knew he wasn't a man of violence. They knew what he was. You don't let wicked people touch an open wound. You don't let some bad physician perform corrective surgery. And you don't let a, grab, a, a rebel grab your ear off the ground, wave it around, and smack it back on the side of your skull. That'd be foolish. But Malchus does this because in his heart and in his mind, 
I believe he knows who and what Jesus really is. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? To capture me? Look at the crowd. They're armed men. They're Roman soldiers. These men know and probably have killed people up close before. Temple guards with their clubs. And and yet here they are in a garden of all places. Not a cave like some bandit hiding from the law. Not some campsite. It's a garden. And they show up armed to the teeth to arrest a carpenter, a rabbi, a handful of fishermen, a former tax collector, maybe one guy who was a physical threat out of all 12, and one guy who clearly doesn't know how to use a sword very well. And Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber? The word robber is listine. It's a, it's a Greek word for a bandit or an insurrectionist. In fact, today we might use the word terrorist. You come at me like I'm a terrorist? That's what he's saying to them. Now, now bandits, for the record, bandits would often fight against Rome. They would sometimes attack uh, soldiers when they were on their way from one city to another, and they would rob them, they would take their rations, they would take their gear, things like that. So some people in the Jewish community saw bandits as revolutionaries in some sense. But Jesus has proven he's not that guy. He's not that sort of man. It's ironic, really. They come at Jesus like he's some kind of thief. And what happens? They crucify him between two of them, between two thieves. In fact, when you look at the the Roman soldiers, they come with their short swords used in close combat. Jesus said, you came here, you came here looking for a fight. You came here looking for me to push back. You came here with your swords, your clubs to capture me? It's a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, who do you think I am? You think I command an army? You think I've got a platoon? Look at the people I surround myself with. And you're going to send me the, the Jerusalem SWAT team of the first century? Talk about overkill. Robbers don't teach at the temple. Jesus had. Bandits don't walk openly in the street healing the blind, healing the lame, healing the deaf. Jesus had. Terrorists don't win debates with logic against religious leaders. They don't use words to to fight back and try and teach. Jesus had. That's what he'd done. He says, does that really warrant the, the police force you've sent out against me today? Is that really how big of a threat I am to you? He says, he goes on, he says, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Monday, as he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, was he hiding from them? No. Was he such a threat then? Luke says they told him to tell his disciples to be quiet, to rebuke them. The crowd cheered, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were all offended. They said, you better tell them to stop it. He says, if I tell them to stop it, the rocks will cry out. They're going to do it. They're going to worship. And even then, they didn't arrest him. On Tuesday, he disturbed the peace. He caused a lot of problems for them. He disrupted the temple, which had become a marketplace. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. Remember all that? 
And even then, they're seeking a way to destroy him, but they're afraid because there's, there's that mob, that crowd that loved him. On Wednesday, they had their chance. On Wednesday, they could have taken him. Instead, they each took their best shot at him, trying to humiliate him in the court of the temple. And like the saying goes, you're going to come at the king, you best not miss. And oh, they missed. They missed. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin, they missed. By what authority are you doing these things? Well, I'll tell you if you can answer my question, and they can't, so they just slink back to the shadows. The Pharisees, the Herodians, two groups who disdained one another, hated each other, they miss, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to the Lord what's, what's his, that sends them reeling. They don't know how to respond to that. The Sadducees, they miss, remember their attempt, they, they make up this crazy hypothetical story, this black widow of a woman, I guess, she, she has all these husbands who keep dying one after the other, and Jesus says, not only are you wrong, you don't even know why you're wrong, because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Almost a week before this, though, almost a week before this night, one of his own disciples had met with the Sanhedrin. How much money will you give me to turn him over to you? And they counted out 30 silver coins. You see, all along, Judas was the ace up their sleeve. They always had the backup plan that was Judas. Day after day, they would let it pass because eventually they thought, eventually we will get him. And so Jesus lets them get their way. He lets them arrest him. He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Whatever their plans, whatever their intentions, God's sovereign will is to be done. His word does not return void. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and several, many other, actually other scriptures predict what's coming and what's going to come next. But here Jesus specifically is referring to Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against this man who stands next to me, declare the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. We know this because what happens next? They all left him and they fled the faith of the disciples collapses, caves in on itself. They're not comforted by the scriptures. They're not amazed by the healing of Malchus's ear. The actions of Jesus send a message, as does theirs. He's not going to resist arrest this time. He's not fighting back. Everything just gets very real in this moment. They scatter, they run. In fact, the Greek word for fled, ephigon, it literally means they disappeared quickly. It's almost as if they, they just fade into the ether. Can't find them. Where'd they go? They're gone. Now John tells us that he and Peter will follow behind from a safe distance. Mark will never again mention Judas in his gospel. He won't tell us how he dies. He won't tell us the outcome of that. He just leaves it completely out. He doesn't want any more attention on Judas, I guess. But Matthew gives us this little nugget about him. We always say there were two disciples that watched Jesus' trial. And we, we forget Peter was not really watching. He was outside, remember. But there were two. There was John, and there was Judas. 
Judas went with him to trial. Matthew tells us when Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned. Well, how did he see that? He was there when it happened. He saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Judas was at the trial. Judas sees the false accusations. He, he hears the false witnesses. And he's closer inside the court than, than John is. And he's there when Jesus is condemned. And it's only then that he changes his mind about what he's done. But church... Some of you know the Greek word, I've mentioned it many times, metanoia, it means to change one's mind. That is not the word that Matthew uses. Metanoia means to repent, to change your mind so much to the point it changes your actions. That you become a different person. You, you don't want that life. You don't want that sin. Now the word Matthew uses is metamelethias. Simply means he felt bad about it. He regretted it. But Judas does not repent. He will let the shame and the remorse eat at him until it drives him to the end of a rope. But, church, there is a difference between remorse and repentance. If you feel shame about your sin, if you feel guilt about your sin, that's good. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. But it must convict you to the point of repentance or it doesn't matter. You must turn away from your sin if you are to be free of it. And that's the Holy Spirit's work inside you as well. And yet, we read all this, we understand that at the lowest point, God's still triumphing. God's still, God is winning. It doesn't look like it. But the scriptures are being fulfilled. Things are coming to a head. And if you have faith to believe, faith to repent, faith to receive his grace, you'll be set free no matter how bad your circumstances are, no matter how bad things get. That's God triumphing. And then there's this little interesting story, verses 51 and 52. It's, it's kind of like a little epilogue that the writer throws in. It says, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Mark is the only one who tells us this story. And it kind of tracks, most scholars think Mark is telling us about himself. Mark would have been a very young man, probably a teenager in this instance. Acts 12, 12 tells us that his family lived in Jerusalem. In fact, some people believe that, that Judas, on his way to the garden, might have even stopped at Mark's house and asked if Jesus had stepped in to visit with the family or something during the Passover meal. But we have to be careful because pretty soon we start writing fiction the Bible doesn't tell us actually happened. But somehow Mark has seen this crowd and he, in a rush, didn't have time to throw clothes on. He runs out to the garden either to watch what's going to happen or to warn Jesus about this mob that's headed his way. Some say it might not have been Mark. It might have been somebody in his intended audience and, and they meant this as, as a humorous thing to break up the intensity of what's going on in the gospel. That Hey, you remember that funny time you, you went streaking? <laughs> And some of you didn't go to college. That's okay. We, <laughs> never mind. You don't do that at Bible college, by the way. Uh, get you in trouble. Yes, Calvin. 
streaking. Um, anyway, so what's the point? Why does Mark include this? Is it a subtle nod just to say, hey, I was there. That's me. Maybe it wasn't Mark, like I said. But we look at this, and what's the purpose of this? Why does, why does Mark say this, really? Why does the Holy Spirit want it included in Scripture? Because throughout the years, for almost 2,000 years, people wanted it removed from the text because they feel like it doesn't add anything. But the point is very clear. Jesus is very alone. Even this distant follower who had nothing else has abandoned him and will shame himself running away this way. This young man in his nightgown won't even go after Jesus, won't even willfully submit himself to arrest on behalf of his Savior. Now Jesus is, he's on his own. And I'll say this one more, even at our lowest points, our lowest moments, he trusts, he knows that God's good plan still triumphs. To really dig into this text, this, this narrative of Mark, it's, it's coming to a climax. And we're going to see Jesus now walking back to Jerusalem with this crowd. He's not being dragged. He's going on his own free will. We see the disciples hitting rock bottom. We see all hope seems lost. It's safe to say our Savior and his friends have reached their lowest point. And yet there is still comfort in these words. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Don't try to fight against what God has ordained. Pray not my will, but your will be done. His will is the thing we actually live for. It's what we push towards. It's what we seek. I'm going to ask the, the music team to come back, the worship team. They're going to lead us in song. But it does not matter where you are in life, what you're facing, what circumstances arising God's word is still true and he is still good and his plan will triumph nothing is impossible for God his word is the most reliable thing in the world I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we worship and I don't know what everybody's circumstances are I don't know what you've gone through this week or what's waiting for you in the next, but I know God's will, God's good plan still triumphs. So let's worship together this morning. We'll dismiss in a word of prayer.